from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Good Wednesday afternoon to you. I'm Sarah Perry, your host on this, the 29th of July, 2020. Coming up on today's edition of Washington Watch, violence and anarchy continue to reign in Portland with no end in sight as rioters call for revolution and the feds struggle to contain violence. Now in its 62nd day, hundreds, sometimes thousands of protesters and rioters emerge every night to target the Mark Hatfield U.S. Courthouse and other structures in downtown Portland. Standing between the courthouse and its destruction are agents from the Federal Protective Service, the U.S. Marshals Service, and U.S. Customs and Border Control Protection, all sent to the city as reinforcements to protect federal buildings. And yesterday, Attorney General William Barr vigorously defended the actions of federal law enforcement and some of his own decisions as he faced hours of questions, criticism, and accusations from Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee. I've got Mark Morgan, senior official, performing the duties of the Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection with the latest. In my second block, Big Tech is on trial this week on Capitol Hill with the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee hearing experts on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act yesterday. And today, the House Judiciary Committee called forth the CEOs of big tech companies to testify on the dominance of their platforms and crushing market power. I'll have Jonathan Schweppe of the American Principles Project, who's been tracking it. At the bottom of the hour, Paris Tenard, Senior Communications Advisor for Black Media Affairs for the Republican National Committee, has got lots to say on whether the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden, has a record of truly helping black Americans. And in my last block, Mike Gonzalez, Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, will join me on the origins and damaging effects of identity politics. He's out with a new book, The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. You know our website, TonyPerkins.com. Follow us on social media, on Facebook for FRC or on Twitter at FRCDC. Follow Tony at T. Perkins or me at Sarah P. Perry. And make sure you have our Stand Firm app. You'll get there the latest up-to-date information on Washington Watch, and you can carry our program with you wherever you go. Well, Attorney General William Barr made an appearance yesterday in front of the House Judiciary Committee to strongly defend the Justice Department's actions in protecting the federal courthouse in Portland. Now, many say it might not have been much like an actual hearing, but rather a coveted election year opportunity for Democrats to berate the Attorney General in five-minute installments interrupting him and accusing him of corruption, perjury, violating his oath, betraying the Constitution, and at one point, incredulously, even of killing thousands of COVID-19 victims, apparently by being the Attorney General during a pandemic. Joining me now is Mark Morgan, senior official performing the duties of the Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Mark, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, sir. We have some pretty specious claims coming out of the congressional lobby from the Democrats, particularly House Judiciary Committee. And Jerry Nadler is leading the charge. He made the bold claim that the violence that is ongoing in Portland, Oregon, is purely mythical. The rest of the Dems have taken up this course. They are reiterating peaceful protests. What do you say to these claims? 
I, I say it's outrageous. And look, I, I have more faith in American people that that although politics right now uh, are, are being put above public safety, the American people they see their, with their own eyes what's going on there. They see, as you said, the last 62 days there have been peaceful protests that have been overtaken and hijacked by violent criminal anarchists every single night with the willful intent to destroy federal property and harm federal agents. That's the truth. That's a fact. It's played out every single night. The American people sees it, and I have faith that they are, are, are they, they know the truth. The interim executive director of the ACLU of Oregon has claimed that federal agents from Trump's Department of Homeland Security and Justice are terrorizing the community, threatening lives, and relentlessly attacking journalists. Saying that your federal agents are terrorizing the community is quite a bold statement. I'm assuming, as with the case of whether or not these are all peaceful protests, you would wholeheartedly disagree with that. It's just a lie, Sarah. It's, a, it's an outright lie to further a, 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 you know, an agenda that, that quite frankly has nothing to do with the tragic death of, of Mr. Floyd. It's, it's outrageous, it's reckless, it's dangerous. Since when did the federal law enforcement going and doing their statutory responsibility, since when did they become the villain? I mean, this is outrageous. I mean, again, every single night, the federal officers are standing there, standing there, and it's not until the federal a building is attacked, and actually the, these criminals are trying to burn the building to the ground while they're trying to seriously harm the law enforcement agents. It, it's, it's unbelievable. I have to tell you what does disappoint me, as so many others that I work with, that I've talked to on this, is the fact that this so vastly detracts from the message of George Floyd's death and trying to change the system to make sure that situations like this don't happen again. In fact, we are hearing reports out of the Portland area that even some of the younger protesters who are showing up to continue saying, listen, we need to pay attention to these claims of racism and we really do need to respect black lives, are actually saying to these anarchists, you are antagonizing, you're detracting from the movement itself. Even about 9.30 last night, a whole group of peaceful protesters had to approach the anarchists and say, you're doing no benefit to this entire movement whatsoever. Are you seeing that there is a sort of incongruence between one group of individuals and another here? Absolutely. And and that's the tragic irony that's going on. The message is being overcome by by this radical group of criminal anarchists. And what we have, though, specifically important, though, is you have political, local political leaders that are actually encouraging and emboldening the the, the anarchists that's going on. It's outrageous, Sarah. I mean, again, they're going there every single night. I mean, they're, they're physically bringing weapons. I mean, crowbars, bats. Uh, lasers. I mean, over 200 federal officers have been injured there. This is all facts. Wow. It's not hyperbole. But yet, uh, you, you have this dialogue. And, and what I would say to the, the to the uh, individuals who want to peacefully protest, they're actually becoming part of the problem in the sense that for 62 nights, they know this is going on like clockwork every single night that the peaceful protests are hijacked by these criminals. I, what I would respectfully suggest to them: go block over, right? Yeah. Separate yourself so that your your legitimate message can be heard instead of being hijacked by these violent anarchist criminals.
Yeah, absolutely. Listen, A.G. Barr told Congress yesterday that he had no doubt that violence would spread to other communities in response to a question by Representative Matt Gates if the rioters in Portland succeeded in destroying the federal courthouse in the city. Do you have a reason to believe that if the presence there, if the federal presence there diminishes, that we're looking at increased violence in other cities as a reaction to this? I, I absolutely think that's legitimate. I mean, because what you're doing is, again, you're sending the message to the violent mob, to the anarchists, that they, they, they're going to win. And, and that's why we've been so strong. I mean, let's take a look. I mean, the courthouse, it's the seat of American justice. Yeah. If we watch the seat of American justice fall, where, where are we going to be at, Sarah? So I yeah. think that's right. So, so we're not going anywhere. But, but, but you know, if, if the local police, if the state police could come in and do what they should have been doing from day one and working with us, you're going to see an appreciable decrease in the violence right away. If local, state, and federal police work together every single time that happens, you're going to see the crisis managed well. Yes, yes. And we've we've been pouring over the testimony from Attorney General Barr. It was really a it was a mammoth undertaking because he was really under fire, managed to maintain his cool, even though there was everything from personal insults to abdications of responsibility to interruptions to not even letting him answer the questions, but saying, instead, I'm reclaiming my time so that he wasn't given a response to answer. And they became essentially Democratic soliloquies. But what he said ultimately was that we have to be continually vigilant in what we're doing. We have done everything right. This is an absolutely unforeseen circumstance. Every decision has been measured what did you take away ultimately from Attorney General Barr's testimony yesterday? I, I think exactly what you said was spot on. I think how you described it, Sarah, is exactly what happened. And again, I think the American people see that for what it is. They, they, they look. Look, I, I, I'm the acting commissioner of CBP, so I, I don't want to get too far into politics. But, but I've, I've, I've gone there and I've testified, and mm. I've been on the other side of that where it was clear they actually didn't want to engage in dialogue. They didn't want to actually hear from the, the, the individual that was testifying, and that's what we saw yesterday. And there's a couple things that A.G. Barr said that he's absolutely correct. Had, had we not, for example, had we not uh, provided the federal presence that we did in, in Portland at the courthouse, we would have watched it burn to the ground. If mm. we would pull out with, without you know proper law enforcement presence there, we would watch it burn to the ground. That's yeah. not going to happen. And that's why right now you're going to see that the, the governor has finally stepped up and, yes. and, and, and has, has said that they are finally going to do what we've asked them to do since day one and send in state police to work with the federal uh, authorities that are there to address this violence going on every night. Uh, and and you're, you're going to see a positive impact because of that. And I'm glad you brought that up. And that is a news item, a breaking news item that's only just a few hours old. Oregon Governor Kate Brown has finally agreed to work with DHS to quell the violence in Portland. But what do you think, being there on the ground, being the commissioner of CBP, what is that going to take logistically to finally get this thing under control? Well, it's pretty straightforward in the sense that state police, for example, a state police organization, again, I've been doing this for 30 years. They're some of the most highly trained, professional, experienced law enforcement in the country. And so I have no doubt that the Oregon State Police is going to come down. They're going to use mutual aid agreements and pull in additional local law enforcement. They're going to work hand-in-hand, side-by-side, shoulder-to-shoulder with the federal agencies that are there at the courthouse, and they're going to do their job that they want to do and they know 
how to do with respect to what they need to do in the city streets of Portland, right, to address the violence, and therefore the attacks against the courthouse will go down. Once that happens, then, then we can remove our federal presence. Yes. That's the way it should be. But, but here's the important part, Sarah, because there's a false narrative out there. Right now, we're not going anywhere. And the, and the governor has alleged that, that we're no longer going to be in Portland, and that's just not true. That's, a, again, another political talking point. We are going to yeah. be there, and we're going to remain there until we see that the state police strategy is working and there's no longer a threat to the facility or our personnel. we got about a minute left here. Talk yeah. about what you're seeing on the horizon in terms of this type of activity, this type of violence and anarchist Marxism on the ground level in other cities. Do you anticipate you'll see anything as bad as Portland or Seattle? Are you hoping this is the end? I, I don't think we're going to see anything as bad as, as Portland and Seattle. I think those areas are anomalies throughout the rest of the country. But, you know, again, don't have a crystal ball. It could happen, but we will be prepared. If it happens like it is in Portland, mark my words, we will send in the appropriate federal resources to protect those buildings and ourselves. But we will also be working with state and local and, and, and that they're willing to work with us to do their job. Mark Morgan, who is Acting Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, has been my guest this hour. We will continue to follow the situation in Portland and send our prayers and well wishes to the men and women of the federal forces who are standing on the line protecting American federal buildings. Coming up, conservative messaging on social media seems to be more limited by the day. Well, we'll talk big tech censorship and market dominance with the Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the American Principles Project, John Schweppe, right after this on Washington Watch. Stick around. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Absent fathers, distracted fathers, and angry fathers have created a vacuum of the soul in the lives of many children. Pornography is epidemic, affecting the male brain, isolating his heart, and degrading women who long to be cherished. Confusion and even skepticism about marriage run rampant, especially in our younger generations. Selfishness among men has led to broken homes and a trail littered with broken hearts, including their own. Where can you turn to find the solutions to these problems? Leadership and Love, A Tale of Two Fathers is a new publication from Family Research Council that takes a look at two men, Joshua and the father of the prodigal son, as strong examples of leadership and love. It also weaves in an understanding of attachment science to underscore the needs of children 
which need to be met to become emotionally healthy and spiritually strong. Visit frc.org slash fathers to learn more. In today's culture, it can be difficult. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry, sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Wednesday, July 29th, 2020. Well, this week alone, one of our Washington Watch guests had an article linking the Portland riots to Marxist ideology censored on Twitter, a video of doctors holding a press conference on Capitol Hill regarding possible cures for coronavirus was shut down by social media outlets. 60 conservatives have written a letter that they submitted to Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Alphabet, Google's parent company, about their own experiences with censorship. Censorship is the flavor of the day, at least this week in Capitol Hill. At the same time, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Tim Cook of Apple, and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, along with Sundar Pichai of Google's parent company, testified today at a House hearing on whether they're companies stifle competition. One expert said it has the feeling of tech's big tobacco moment. Joining me now with his ideas is John Schweppe, Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the American Principles Project. John, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Sarah. Glad to be here. All right. We're off the heels of two hearings on the Hill, one on the reform of Section 230 of the CDA in the Senate and one on antitrust in the House. But the two naturally relate to one another because this is really all about outsized power, isn't it? That's right. Well, we're talking about four companies here, four, the, the four CEOs that testified today. The companies have valuations combined of nearly $5 trillion dollars. So the amount of power there is unprecedented. These are the most powerful companies in the history of the world. And, you know, what we're looking at here is uh, the two sides of the aisle have different perspectives on how to approach that, that, that power. The Democrats want complete control over it. They want government to regulate that power so that they can exercise it. And the Republicans are very concerned about what the, what the uh, companies are already doing with regard to uh, censorship of conservative ideas and opinions. Um, and they're, they're looking to advance the values of free speech and free expression. So those are kind of the two sides of this debate. Uh, the Democrats in the House, obviously, um, hosting the hearings. And, you know, they very much just want uh, complete control over that power. You know, Big Tech's current exemption from scrutiny as a publisher of content, it's Obviously benefited from this for many, many years. It's bestowed on it by the Communications Decency Act. For those of our listeners here who are not really sure what that means, Section 230, you'll hear a lot about that, and that was the Senate hearing yesterday. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act has protected for many, many years these big tech companies' ability to decide whether or not they will be taking down or disenfranchising, demonetizing or deplatforming viewpoints, perspectives that they don't necessarily agree with. So we have sort of a two-pronged approach. We come at the big tech issue through modification of Section 230. Obviously, the Trump administration executive order challenging that exemption pays a lot of close attention to that. And we know that this administration has their eyes on Section 230. Or we go the antitrust route because these are organizations that, for all intents and purposes, really do have a full market share of their 
associated services and platforms. Of the two of them, and you and I have talked about this offline, so I think I know which way, which way you're going to sort of lean on this. Which do you think is the better avenue to make sure perspectives, divergent perspectives, everyone's ability to express themselves freely can actually be protected? Well, I think there's, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of addressing two different problems. The antitrust route really addresses the concentration of power and if that itself is a problem with, you know, regard to consumers and if they're being dealt harm with some of these small businesses that have shut down during COVID. Uh, so I think that's an important issue to explore. But as far as it goes with conservative speech, uh, we believe that, you know, reforming Section 230 is the way to go there. And currently, you know, this, as you described it very aptly, you know, this is effectively a subsidy for these companies mm-hmm. in the way it protects them from people like us. Uh, it protects them from the ability we have to take them to court. Um, it completely gives them immunity there. And so what we believe is that, you know, for them to get this special immunity that no other industry uh, in America enjoys, they probably should, at the very least, promote freedom of speech and freedom of expression on their platforms. Once they started getting into this um, territory where they're censoring conservative ideas and advancing progressive ideas, well, then it doesn't necessarily make sense for them to receive this immunity. And so I think that's kind of our, our, our perspective on it. So you all performed polling in 10 battleground states. I talked a little bit with Surprise Strategies last week, but talk a little bit about what voters in those 10 battleground states had to say about online censorship. How did they feel? Well, they were, you know, they they didn't like it. Um, We we tried to phrase this question in a way that didn't prejudice the outcome. Um, So the question we asked was specifically, should big tech companies such as Google, Facebook, and Twitter be allowed to censor speech on their platforms if that speech would otherwise be constitutionally protected in the public square. So we weren't trying to prejudice. We were trying to get an honest answer. And about 60% of Americans said, no, big tech companies should not be allowed to censor. Um, you know, that's that's a pretty significant number. And, and we mm. saw actually that the divide across Republicans and Democrats, you know, it was there, there was some partisan difference, but, you know, there were a lot of Democrats even that opposed this. So, um, you know, people, I, I think Americans just stand up for the idea of free speech. And, you know, we've been taught by, by some of our elites that it only applies in instances of government censorship. But, you know, we have these, these companies are so large, they're almost acting as pseudo-governments. And, yes. you know, it's important that, that we fight to advance these values because if, you know, if ideas and, and opinions aren't allowed on these platforms, they die. And it's a, it's a very Orwellian outcome uh, yeah. that I think we try to avoid. You all at APP have worked to propose a solution to the problem of Section 230 and how we might not have to reinvent the wheel to actually make this a workable solution and promote a platform of free expression. Where can we find that solution, and what have you called it? Um, So we've called it uh, a plan to protect kids and promote free speech, and you can find it on our website, AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. That's the proposal to amend Section 230. More germane now, I would think, than ever as we continue to discuss big tech censorship and its ever-growing influence. John Schweppe, Director of Policy and Government Affairs, has been my 
guest on this segment coming up. We're going to look at Joe Biden's record and whether he is the obvious choice for African-American voters with Paris Denard, Senior Communications Advisor for the Republican National Committee, right after this on Washington Watch. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Wednesday, July 29th. TonyPerkins.com is our podcast website. As always, we've got links for our guests and our resources, the articles, statistics, things that you can use for a more thorough understanding of the topics that we're talking about on Washington Watch. Make sure that you also have the Stand Firm app. It is in your smartphone's store. We have rebuilt the app. From the ground up, and you can take the show with you and stream it whenever you want. Well, in late spring, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden made an appearance on a radio show called The Breakfast Club. He then had the unmitigated gall to say, Well, I tell you what, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black, end quote. My next guest has some thoughts on Joe Biden's record as concerns African-Americans and whether or not Biden ought to be taking the black vote for granted. Joining me now is Mr. Paris Denard, Senior Communications Advisor for Black Media Affairs for the Republican National Committee. Paris, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me. You wrote an impassioned op-ed back in May of this year, shortly after Biden had made these bigoted remarks. It must have incensed you that he did then and seems to now take the African-American vote for granted. Well, Joe Biden is a bigot. And what incensed me is the fact that for over four decades, his bigotry has been allowed to be in the public square as a, as a sitting uh, United States senator and as the vice president for eight years, and it's mm-hmm. gone unchecked. It's unacceptable for the vice president, for a United States senator, to use the language that he uses to, to, to and quite frankly, uh, enact and propose and write the legislation and policy that he has proposed that has led to, in my opinion, and the opinion of many others, the destruction of the black family, black generational wealth, and the black community, as mm. is as seen in his 1994 crime bill. So when he said, you ain't black, not only did he offend black Republicans, he offended black Democrats and black liberals who did vote, who might not have voted for him in the primary and would probably not voting for him, uh, like Nina Turner, former uh, rep out of Ohio, uh, who, was on the Biden, uh, who was on the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, that had very uh, choice words about Joe Biden this week which I dare not say on this program. Mm. But when you look at uh, what Bob Johnson, the founder of BET, said after the U.N. black comment, he said Joe Biden should spend the rest of his time on the campaign trial apologizing to every black person that he meets because it was so paternalistic, uh, uh, dehumanizing and rude and, and disgusting. You know, it's interesting. This 1994 crime bill, and you made very clear in your op-ed that he had, for so many years, offered this full-throated defense of the 94 crime bill. Talk a little bit about the difference between Trump and Biden as concerns specifically the notion of criminal justice reform, because President Trump has really done incredible things when it comes to the African-American community and disproportionately incarcerated populations by really taking 
taking some aggressive measures. It's a bright contrast to Joe Biden himself, isn't it? Yeah, simply put, uh, President Trump in four years has, uh, has undid, in less than four years, has und- he sought to undo the work that Joe Biden did in 1994 and in, in writing the legislation for the 1994 crime bill. Even uh, the, the one of the founders of the uh, Black Lives Matter organization is on the record in an L.A. Times article, and then it's Patrice, uh, and then it's Patrice saying that there's no doubt that that the 1994 crime bill led to the mass incarceration of thousands of black Americans, if not millions, to be mm-hmm. uh, quite honest. And so the, the, it's universally accepted that the 1994 crime bill led to mass incarceration. And Joe Biden has had years, decades, to fix it. As vice president, with the first black president of the United States, they did nothing to overturn uh, the wrongs of the 1994 criminal uh, crime bill and did not pass criminal justice reform. They couldn't get it done, even when they had majority. Yes. President Trump comes in and has the First Step Act, and by Christmas of that time when it was done, thousands were home uh, with their families. And what this bill does, what the First Step Act does, is it's, it's an economic policy. It's a family policy. It's mm. reuniting uh, men and women with their families. It's helping them be productive citizens again by finding them jobs and, 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 and helping them become productive tax-paying citizens by giving them uh, the, the type of skills and the training necessary while they are incarcerated. It is a positive thing. It is about family unification. It is about forgiveness. It is about love. It is mm. about compassion. It is about understanding that once you have done your time, uh, uh, because of the crime that you did, you should come out and, 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 and reunite with your family and become a productive citizen. Rather than what Joe Biden tried to do was, like you said, lock the SOBs up for as long as possible, right. for the smallest of crimes, three strikes and you're out. And they were in there for years. Yes. And it was unfair, it was disproportionate, it was on purpose. You know, this is a guy who's been in Washington 50 years. This is half a century that he's had to get things accomplished. And instead, he's made all the wrong choices. And he has presented such a contrast to a president who is concerned with lifting people out of poverty, eliminating regulations, making jobs and home ownership easier to accomplish for everyone in the community because a rising tide lifts all boats. Paris Denard has been my guest in this segment with the Republican National Committee Senior Communications Advisor for their Black Media Affairs. Coming up next on Washington Watch, we've got something to say about identity politics. I'll talk to Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Mike Gonzalez, who's out with a new book, The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free, right after this on Washington Watch. Could you use some timely and original commentary to read this summer, specifically on the issues facing our culture today? FRCblog.com has just what you're looking for. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, members of the Family Research Council team, as well as outside contributors. You can learn about religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Check out this list of a few of our most recent titles. What does it mean to be a woman? 
D.C. Christians take to the streets to sing, lament, and pray, and prayerfully responding to civil unrest. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you to live out your faith and stand for truth. Our blog helps you do just that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. On April 16th, President Trump and the White House Coronavirus Task Force announced a three-phase plan with guidelines for how states can begin scaling back restrictions. Churches should begin putting in place plans to reopen and operate their ministries according to the guidance of the Centers for Disease Control as state officials begin lifting orders. Here at Family Research Council, we have summarized the White House three-phase plan and how it relates to in-person church meetings and gatherings. Check out our resource, What Pastors should know about the White House plan to open up America again. Our resource offers practical guidelines for how churches and houses of worship can begin to operate safely as our country reopens. Visit frc.org slash church guidelines to view this resource and learn more. There you'll also find our full list of resources for churches in the time of coronavirus. Again, that's frc.org slash church guidelines. Welcome back on this Wednesday edition of Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry. In a year rife with protests and riots, right and wrong beliefs, calls to defund the police, good and bad groups, Black Lives Matter, and Supreme Court decisions expanding once settled definitions, an important book has just been released. Mike Gonzalez, a senior fellow in the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation, has written a new book and joins me now. The book is The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. Mike, welcome back to Washington Watch. Uh, Sarah, thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, you're one of my favorite interviewers, so I'm very pleased to be here with you. Well, thank you. I got to tell you, never has there been more of an apt book for this year. I think when we all started, we find ourselves sort of with spinning eyes thinking we've had to deal with everything from economic unrest to a pandemic to social unrest. And here comes a book about identity politics. And really, if there is a theme to this year that we are working hard to counter, it's the notion of divisions, the way we divide ourselves from one another. So the book is called How the Entirety, right? So Identity Politics, How It's Dividing the Land of the Free. Talk a little bit about the destructive characteristics of identity politics. Yes, so you're absolutely right. Uh, I finished writing this book, obviously, last November. Little did I realize that it was going to be so timely. I'm elated that the book is so timely because I want the ideas to get out. But I'm very saddened as to why it is timely. It means the country is in really dire straits. Now, what do I mean by uh, I want the ideas to get out? What I set out to do with this book is to, to really shed light, to expose why we're so divided. What is identity politics? Identity politics is the division of America into groups that are based on race, ethnicity, sex, sexual orientation, gender, uh, uh, even disability status, right? Anything right. that gives the member of one of these groups a claim on victimhood, that they can say, uh, my victimhood entitles me to attention, to respect, 
to dignity, to compensatory justice, uh, or to rewards. <clears throat> and and that is a, as you can imagine, and your listeners right now are imagining, that is a very bad way to order society. And sure. yet, this is what we have done. This is exactly what we have done. Now, what I set out to do with my book is to, to shed light on this, to describe who did this, why they did it, what has happened, how they did it, and what we can do about it. It is, as you said, very timely in the summer of 2020, uh, and I, I, I hope the ideas get out and we become woke to the woke. So, first of all, I love that because this this really is the attempt at becoming woke to the woke because that's another one of the themes for this year is sort of wokeism run amok, right? We don't know how to have civil discourse with our fellow man. We're not allowed to sit down and have disagreeing concepts hashed out and still be friends at the end of the conversation. But instead, in some parts of the country, it's devolved now into moral and societal chaos. So the book dispels a number of the myths about identity politics. And one of the myths that your book dispels is that Identity politics itself is not a grassroots movement. It feels that way. It presents itself that way. I give you the Women's March movement, although it has since fizzled because identity politics, shock and awe, appeared to be its undoing. Some were anti-Semites, some were not. And after a while, the snake ate its own tail, and the Women's March is a shadow of once what it once was. So talk a little bit about why this is not truly a grassroots movement. I'm so glad you asked that question because that is the first myth to be dispelled, that this is a a clamor from from top, from bottom up, people asking for recognition. No, this is, if you look, as I have, and I did the research, you look at when the groups were first created, when the identities were first assigned, this was all an elite project. Let me give you a, a single example. The Ford Foundation gave UCLA researchers a lot of money to, to go to the Southwest, to California, to canvas Mexican-Americans. They, they, they canvassed a lot of money, especially back then. They came back with the information which, which made the UCLA people aghast that Mexican-Americans actually did not feel like they were victims. They did not feel like they were members of minorities. They mm. faced discrimination, and they knew that, but they thought they could solve their own problems through individual agency and action. Mm. And that is not what they, they, they wanted to hear. So they set out to do the hard work of instilling grievances into people. They create the Hispanic identity, the Hispanic synthetic panethnicity that the, that the activists forced the government to create. So OMB has to comply and create this this identity, as well as Asian Americans, in 1977 through policy directive number 15, and then it's applied to the census, and now we have it all around us. But this is – nobody wanted this. Let me just give you one more example, if you, if you, if you will, will – uh, let me – allow me to. Yes. Nina, Middle East, North Africa was about to be created – or President Obama wanted to create it. In 2015, they bring in a lot of activists. A lot of really lefty professors and activists into the Census Bureau, and they have a conversation about how to create MENA. They're trying to use Hispanics as a, as, a, as, a, as a model. And people begin to say, and I quote them, the video is online, look, people don't want this. Americans of, of Arab descent 
do not want to, to be set to, to, to be formed into a group. And the, the activists say, aha, but once you understand that this is associated with uh, assistance, which is associated with, um, uh, you know, uh, easy admissions to Congress, to college, or with uh, uh, set aside in government contracting, they will like it. So they are that cynical. It's at that cynical level. Yes. You know, it's very interesting to me that you've described this in a way I've never heard it described before, but yet makes perfect sense about this notion of there being sort of an identity trance, that it's so easy to buy into the notion of belonging to these segmented groups and taking your singular identity from what characteristic you happen to have. I, for example, have a son who is on the autism spectrum. I don't call him autistic. I say my son Noah who has a diagnosis of, so it's not who he is, it's just a function of what he has. His person is separate from his characteristics, from his diagnoses, from the color of his skin. But you talk about this being an identity trance, so it holds a lot of appeal, particularly among the younger generation. Why is that? Well, because this is all they have heard. Christina Mora, who is a, a, a liberal professor from California, she talks about a, a, a process of collective amnesia in which people begin to forget that these identities didn't exist before. They mm. think they have been around forever. And, and so if you talk to a millennial, they think that, you know, the Hispanic identity has been around since Roman times. They don't know that it was created by OMB in a neon-lit room in 1977. Right. Uh, uh, you know, they so so people buy into this, and obviously, as you well know, and you've had many people on your show tell you, our educational system has been has been co-opted into doing this work, into yes. instilling grievances into people. This is something that your your listeners should be aware of because we know, we need to know what's happening. Yes, absolutely, and in fact, it, it cannot bear enough repeating. We really have signed over the minds of our children to a large extent by not doing our own diligence and our own homework and making sure we understand what they're being taught and where they're being taught it. But again, gone are the days of just sort of bucolically sending our children off to pre-K and trusting that they'll come out in 12th grade, seniors in high school with their own moral center intact. Those days are definitely gone. And what we do is we stamp the social justice paradigm onto their bodies and their minds once they get to college or graduate school. And before you know it, you have a city like Portland that is currently burning and requires the presence of federal law-keeping officers. So it's a bit of a paradigm here. I think that we have to work very diligently to break down. We have a vice presidential Democratic presumptive nominee here that's about to make a selection on his own vice presidential choice. He has already committed to picking a woman. What say you about whether or not that is identity politics at play? Well, first of all, is something happening in Portland? Because I've been watching uh, CNN and the network. <laughs> no, no. In fact, it's all peaceful. So just ignore. <laughs> I even brought it up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. Obviously, we want the best person for the job. Yes. You know, I don't care if the Harvard class, the law class of 
2022 is 100% Chinese American or 100% African American or Jewish American or Cuban American or, 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 or WASP American or whatever. I don't right. care. I want there to be equal opportunity. I think that is what our system has always, that the ideals of our system, we have not always lived to those ideals. We, we must strive to, to live by those ideals and, and stop having, this is crazy. We've done this before. We lived through separate but equal. We lived through Jim Crow. Yes. What would we want to have again? You know, I have to say that there is a part of this, too, for me as a woman that, like you said, is offended by the notion of simply being picked because I feel some demographic need, that I am an affirmative action hire and I am being selected strictly because of my sex, although apparently now that also includes my gender identity, whether that be pansexual or identifying as a biological woman. Thank you, Supreme Court. Although I have to tell you, at this point, so much of the way we grew up as women, and my mother was living during the post-sexual revolution and when it was very unpopular for women to stay at home, and so we've almost found ourselves in part two of this identitarian crisis. So first it was we needed our own recognition we needed equal pay. We wanted the ERA passed. We wanted birth control covered by our health insurance providers. And now we find ourselves not even sufficient in that identity unless we are, for example, also an illegal immigrant or a Muslim or a lesbian or we are genderqueer. It's almost as if we've established a hierarchy through some sort of partisan mitosis of preferential categories. And being, for example, a Republican who is a Caucasian living in the suburbs is the least desirable category to inhabit at this point. We've set up our own ladder of which groups need to be paid more attention to or receive preferential treatment or determine what the entire narrative of the nation is at this point. And that, to me, I find offensive. Look, the reason I wrote the plot to change America was to open people's minds. I really want to change. Sarah, if you can help me do this, I want people to to change how they see and talk about this. After they finish reading the book, I want them to lend it to other people. Because the more people who understand, people who have read it tell me it's filled with aha moments. People need to understand what's happened. Now, going back to what you were saying, suppose somebody said, I have this position, a very senior position, and I'm going to give it to a Cuban-American. And mm-hmm. they announce it's Mike Gonzalez. How do I feel about that? How do, how do I feel that I've been given a position because of something that is beyond my control? Right, right. Entirely bizarre. And I have to tell you what, what this brings me to, and I know you don't want to give away the secret sauce, right? Why else do you write the book unless there are a, some of those aha moments and moments for which we as the reader can go, this makes perfect sense. To rebuff this, we do X. Without giving it all away, Mike, because that is the point after all of writing a book, what is What's a characteristic of our battle plan to be able to fight the notion of identity politics driving what we choose to do and how we speak and elect and act as Americans? How do we push back? No, I, am, I, I will gladly give it away because I'm into the idea of getting out. This is not going to be easy. 
I don't want to, but we should not, we should not overthink it either. And just because something is tough doesn't mean we would not try it. Mm-hmm. We need to get the government out of the categories. Creating, you know, ethnic categories. Yes. Um, uh, there's a very good piece written today in the Yale Journal on, on, on regulation saying that, you know, the, 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 the NIH is collecting data on Hispanics, for example, for medical reasons, which is of no use whatsoever because, quote-unquote, Hispanics can be European ancestry or African or indigenous. For medical purposes, Hispanic ancestry means absolutely zero. So the government has to get out of the business of creating these categories, and then it has to get out of the business of offering benefits for belonging to these categories. Mm. Once we start doing that, we have begun the work of, of, of taking down identity politics. Sarah, obviously, I'm not promising that in 100% that's all we need to do. We need to do other things. We need to get, you know, we, we, the universities are suffused with these ideologies. But if you follow these, these steps that I just laid out, I believe that's the beginning of the work. The book is just out, hardcover, just came out yesterday, July 28th. Where is it available so that people can go to buy it, Mike? Amazon, The Plot to Change America. Go to heritage.org slash the plot. Uh, again, I must say the book is selling well. It's a bestseller in, 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 in several Amazon categories. Uh, for reasons that I, I'm not happy about, but I do want the idea to get out. Wonderful. Mike Gonzalez, who is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. You have to read his bio. It's highly impressive. The book is The Plot to Change America. I encourage you to check it out for yourself. This has been Washington Watch on Wednesday, July 29th. I'm Sarah Perry. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234.